0: Well, good morning, everyone. I want to share that if there are still kids in here for the crew program, uh, this is a great opportunity to head out to the youth room. I know they've got some exciting things planned, so you can take the opportunity to do that if you haven't yet. Are you having a good morning here in the house of the Lord? For me, our worship today has just, I don't know, it's hit me right in the feels, uh, and there's a real variety uh, we began by singing great things, proclaiming God's goodness of all the, the great things that He has done for us. Then we sang that newer song, the, the Hymn of Heaven, just a wonderful uh, summation of what Scripture is all about and what we look forward to in our heavenly home. And then a little while ago, just a wonderful and steadfast hymn of the church. Great is thy faithfulness. I pray that God has been moving in your heart as he has been in mine already. And now as we look to God's word, I pray that it would continue. It's great to have you sharing with us today as we gather this Family Day weekend. I know we've got some people away. I also know we've got some people visiting. And so welcome. And we miss you if uh, you find yourselves in either of those categories. Uh, But I am thankful that you have chosen to share with us today here in this place and to worship uh, in in this place here at Northridge today. This week, we've got a very interesting passage of scripture that we're looking to. They're all very interesting, but this week in particular, I think is pivotal as we continue our trek through the entirety of the Bible. Six weeks ago, Doesn't seem like that long, does it? Six weeks ago, we started this sermon series, working our way through God's Word. We began that first week with some history, some context about how we got God's Word, how this collection of documents and writings and and letters that we call Scripture came to be. We then looked at creation and the garden. We looked at the fall and the entering of sin into the world. We looked at God's covenant with Abraham as God calls, called the Jews his chosen people. Last week, Jacob led us through the story of Moses right up to the point where um, God brought them out of Egypt by his mighty hand. Brendan referenced that for us a little earlier as he read scripture. They were reminded of that. And now we pick up sort of continuing with the line of Moses and his narrative and his story to the point where Israel receives and God gives his law. And I'm excited about this. At first, I was a little apprehensive, and I questioned Jacob as we put together this series. I first got to preach about sin and the fall, and now I get to preach about the law And I wondered at first, when do I get to speak the fun stuff? (laughs) But the more that I studied and the more I reflected on God's law, the reality came through that this is a wonderful opportunity to talk about and reflect on the greatness of God, to think about and consider his holiness, and then, too, to connect this passage of Scripture with the entirety of the narrative and into who Jesus is and what he's done, this great gospel message. And so today, as we look at the law and we consider that, these are the pieces that I think would help us best to walk through. We're going to look at some context. We're going to learn a little bit about the law. And then we're going to ask, why? Why would God give the law? What does the law do? How does it tie into the story of Scripture as a whole? And finally, what do we do with the law today? How do we understand it in light of who Christ is? Does that sound good? Yeah, good, excellent. So about the law. After God brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, they wandered in the wilderness for a bit and made their way to the foot of Mount Sinai. Now, you keen readers of God's word will recognize that name because what happened at Mount Sinai? You could say, it's okay. It's the burning bush, right? This is where God first met with Moses. And we remember the iconic line, take off your shoes, take off your sandals, for this is holy ground. And so Moses and the Israelites have made their way back now and have camped at the foot of this mountain, and they're waiting to hear from the Lord. And it doesn't take long. In Exodus 19, in verse 3, we read these words, the Lord called to him from the mountain And said, give these instructions to the family of Jacob. This is God talking to Moses here. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth. For all the earth belongs to me. God declares, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. And so Moses then delivers this message to the people at the foot of the mountain, along with a warning that they're not to climb up the mountain themselves, because God is going to rest his presence on the mountain in the form of a thick cloud. And God will only meet with Moses. And you'll notice these first words that God speaks here at the foot of the mountain. They reflect, they mirror almost the covenant made years before with Abraham. If you obey me, if you keep my covenant, then you will be my special treasure among the nations. See, because God hasn't forgotten about his people. He hasn't forgotten about his covenant. And even though they have broken it over and over and over again, even in this short span of history, even though they've messed it up over and over, God seeks to make it right. God's constantly working and seeking to make it right. And this time he's going to equip his people to live according to his will by providing them with a list of his expectations of what it looks like to be a holy nation before God Almighty. And so in Exodus chapter 20, we read how God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses and had him declare God's law to the people, written on a tablet. A great story that I encourage you to read through, as there's some interesting twists and turns. But in any case, they end up with the law. Now, the Hebrew word for the law is halacha. It's my rough Hebrew here. And it's translated to mean the way, or the way of walking. And it includes not only the Ten Commandments that were given uh, to Moses on the tablets, but as well a total of 613 laws that outline how to live according to God's expectation. There's 248 positive laws. Do this, remember this, do that. And that leaves 365 negative laws, like do not do this or do not do that. Interesting to note, Israel at the time thought there were 248 bones in the body sort of body parts, and then 365 days in the year. Interesting, eh? The law, then, the halaha, is made up of both Torah law, which is laws that were given directly to the Israelites through his word. God spoke them. We read them throughout the books of Exodus and Leviticus and they're specific. So in Leviticus, for example, that's a book for uh, laying out the law to the priests from the family of Levi, the Levites, Leviticus. That's how it's put in. We read them in Deuteronomy. Now, Deuteronomy, Moses sort of gives the law again. He recaps the important pieces, and it's reflected in the word Deuteronomy, deutero, meaning second or again, Anonymy from the root for law. So it's like the law again. It's that second giving of God's law. And so we see it there. And in these books, in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, God lays out the law as his expectations that are to guide the lives of his chosen people. Now, I know what you're thinking already, because I thought it too. Three books worth, over 600 laws that's a lot. How did they ever do it? How did they remember? Well, they reflected on Torah regularly. We read it. The call from Moses was to bind it on their doors, to talk about it with their children when they get up, when they eat, when they go to bed, any opportunity where they could to reflect and think about scripture. So there's that piece. But also, the laws, all 613 of them, can be broken down, broken down, broken down to two main points. Two main things to remember. We see it explicitly as Jesus talks to one of the religious leaders in Luke chapter 10. One day an expert, get that, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking the question, what should I do to inherit eternal life? The religious teacher essentially asking, what do I do? How do do I please God? How do I live according to his will? Jesus replied, well, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, not with 613 specific laws, listing them off, he says... You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus said. Do this, and you will live. So all those laws rooted in those two key pieces, expectations that God lays out. So that's just a little context. Now, the next question then, why? Why would God give the law in this way? Well, as we read scripture, we're told, we learn that the law was given to the Israelites for their own good. In Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 32, Moses tells the people, you must be careful to obey the commands of the Lord your God, following his instructions in every detail. Stay on the path that the Lord your God has commanded you to follow. Then you will live long and prosperous lives in the land that you are about to enter and occupy. A little later, Moses says again in chapter 10 and verse 12, And now, Israel, what does the Lord God require of you? He requires that you fear the Lord your God and live in a way that pleases him, and love him and serve him with all your heart and soul. And you must always obey the Lord's command and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. So then, what does that look like? What does it mean for the law to be for their own good? Well, let's think about it. What has humanity been trying to do ever since the fall? They've been trying to reconnect with, to reunite with, to commune with, to be brought back into right relationship with their heavenly Father, who is holy, holy, holy. And by adhering to God's law, the people can do just that. See, God is holy, so holy, in fact, that sin cannot be near him. And ever since the fall, humanity has experienced this separation from our creator because of sin. That's what we talked about when we first looked at the fall back in Genesis. But God, in his graciousness, lays out the expectations for the Israelites to follow, so that they can live according to God's will. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. The law also sets the people as different from everybody else on earth. They're separate. They're chosen. God calls them to be a special treasure among the people of earth, holy and set apart. Now, this would be evident in a variety of ways. First, the laws themselves were very different than other laws in the time and context. This high standard of living experienced by the Israelites, this moral imperative, the emphasis on responding out of the love of God with obedience, of loving one another, it would reveal a portrait of who God is as both holy and and merciful, as one who is righteous and gracious, and one who is altogether worthy of worship. So then how does this fit in the entirety of the Bible, in the story, the overarching theme or or narrative as we've been working through? Well, remember now, The heart of the law of Moses was rooted in two key pieces. Say them with me. Love God, love others. Here we go. Love God, love others. That's it. But here's the thing. Because of the sinful condition of humanity, Israelites couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. They couldn't keep the law. And the thing about it is once the law is broken... It's always been broken. And there's nothing you can do about it to reset the scales. Think about it like this. It's a beautiful day, maybe not unlike today, but in my mind's eye, I picture summer. Beautiful day, you're on this wide open stretch of road, behind the wheel of your car, windows down, great tunes on, sunglasses, the whole works. You picture it, right? arm hanging out the window, maybe you're like these, or maybe you're this guy, you know, I want to, so, this is where you're at, okay, and it's just a beautiful day, and you're really into it, and then you notice, yep, those, (laughs) and Jeff pulls up behind you, no, (laughs) and you see them, and you see the lights, and then you look, and you realize, uh uh-oh, a bit of a heavy foot. I'm speeding. And even though you know the limit, even though you just passed the sign, it says maximum 60 or whatever, and even though you know the difference, and the last words your wife said to you on your way out was, Fred, make sure you take your time. Don't get a ticket. You have done it, and you've broken the law. So you pull over, like a good law-abiding citizen that you are. The officer comes to the window and he says, do you know how fast you're going? In my mind, police officers are very stereotypical, and so that's the word. Do you know how fast you were going? Yeah, I do. Do you know the limit? Yeah, I do. Okay, well, uh, you're getting a ticket today. (laughs) That's how it always works out for me. You're getting a ticket today. You've broken the law. And from that moment, you've broken the law. You've done it, and there's nothing you can do about it. You're a lawbreaker, guilty. See, that's what the law does. It reveals guilt. It doesn't reveal innocence. I mean, the law doesn't really apply when you're well within its bounds, right? No police officer is going to pull you over, and when he gets to the window, roll you down and say, I just want to let you know you are following the law. You're doing great. (laughs) Have a good day maybe that's your experience that doesn't happen to me when I get hauled over (laughs) but that's that's the thing the law only reveals guilt right it only tells you where you've messed up because that's what it is let's look to Paul's letter to the Romans he says it this way in Romans chapter 3 obviously the law applies to those to whom it was given for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. For no one can be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. James chapter 2, James, brother of Jesus, records it this way in James 2 and verse 8. Yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law as found in scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others... You are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. For the person who keeps all the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. See, because of sin, we can't keep the laws. The Israelites couldn't, and we can't today. And in order to truly live according to God's design and His purposes, there needed to be a change, a shift in our very nature, a transformed heart, Scripture calls it. Moses first said it to the Israelites, In Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 6, The Lord your God will change your heart and the hearts of all your descendants so that you will love him with all your heart and soul, and so you may live. The prophets said the same words to a wicked generation of people who needed to experience transformation. Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 25 He proclaims that God will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away and you will no longer worship idols. And I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. What a great passage of Scripture. What a great prophecy that Ezekiel blesses us with. Today, Paul wrote it to the church in Rome 2,000 years ago, and I think writes to us today from Romans chapter 12. He says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing, and perfect. See, to live according to God's will, we need a transformed heart, a renewed mind, and that is only possible, only found through Jesus Christ. Only he can forgive us from breaking the laws of God, and at the same time, he can graciously restore us to right relationships. With our Heavenly Father. Remember now, what are the two key components of the law? Ready? Love God, love our neighbors, love others. Exactly. And who did that perfectly? Yeah, it's the Sunday school answer Jesus. Absolutely. He came and he fulfilled the demands of the law perfectly. And. He offers us a new heart, a transformed one, capable of love. One that's no longer bound by sin, but ruled by the Spirit of God. See, in Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection, the old covenant passes away and is replaced with a new covenant. One that is rooted in relationship with Jesus Christ. Jeremiah 31. 33, Jeremiah is a prophet. He says it's going to go down like this. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And he continues a couple verses later. And I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. That's what it means to know Jesus Christ as our Savior. It doesn't mean the laws don't apply. It means that Jesus fulfilled them. And as he comes and fills us, we can rely on his spirit to guide us, to move in us, and to respond in a way that we can love God and love others as Jesus did. That's what it means to know Jesus Christ as our Savior. To recognize, yeah, that we've all broken God's laws, but because of his grace, a way has been made for us to be forgiven of our transgressions against God and against others. By his Spirit's work, we're blessed to have a new heart, as if we are a new creation, Paul says. One that's able to live out our greatest callings, to love God, to love others. And so, if you're here today, and you're in our midst here, and you're watching online, and you recognize in these moments that that's what you need, that you need a new heart, that you need to learn to love God and others, that you need forgiveness. If you're here today and your, your heart needs to be transformed, if you need to experience God's love, if you want to know what it really means to love God and love your neighbor, then I want to introduce you to my good friend and my personal Savior, Jesus Christ. Because it is in him alone that we are made fit to love, fit for righteousness, that we can live in relationship with our Heavenly Father. I'm going to invite our worship team, if you'd come and join me again. And we're going to sing some words in just a little bit. And as they come, I want to extend an invitation to those of you who would like to pray that we have a space for that. Just out here in our fireside room, just on the other side of that door, we've got a space that's dedicated that's set aside for prayer. We've got people who are willing to pray with you if you want to be prayed with, or you can go and pray on your own, but but we set that aside as a sacred space for God's people and those seeking to be God's people to meet with him. It is a sacred space we call holy ground where we meet before God. And so as we share together today, I pray that today would be the day that we can sing with all of our hearts, the very depths of who we are, that our hope is found in Christ alone. That this would be the day where we would seek him in earnest. That it would be a day where where we would invite him to transform our hearts so that we can live in right relationship so that we can experience his forgiveness, freedom from the bounds of the law, and loving God and loving our neighbor with his kind of perfection. And so I'm going to invite you, if you would, to stand with me as we share these words together, if we can have them on the screen. And in particular, this is the verse, this is the key piece The song is in Christ alone, but these words, and as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. I pray that would be our experience today and that we would give God's spirit freedom to move in this place as we come before him just now. Let's be in prayer as we sing together.